one of the things that we do with our team as we're preparing and getting ready for a trip such as this is we talk about the idea of expectations and reality. Uh, let's really get our mindset on what we're actually going to be doing. The expectation is not your family's vacation, right? The reality is your accommodations are going to be less than what you're probably comfortable with, and the work that we're doing is self-sacrificing and giving. The expectation can be we know what it takes. We have the answers. We have the resources. We're going to go and help these people who are in need. The reality is we don't know how to change anyone or anything. The reality is Jesus is the one who's at work, and he's going to be at work in us as much or even more than he's at work in the people that we are going to serve and be with. This idea of expectations and reality uh, plays out in many ways, and we often experience it on a daily basis on a variety of levels. Like the other day, I caught word that the monster truck show was going to be in town. And I was like, oh, yeah, I remember when I was a little kid, my dad took me to the monster truck show. It was amazing. Maybe, maybe I could do that with my son this time. So I go online, search up the tickets, and I'm like, these tickets aren't really making sense. Why are they having standing room at a monster truck show? Turns out, the monster truck is the name of a band. And, and I did not buy the tickets, and I did not go. Because that was not what I was expecting. The expectation of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey on this Palm Sunday, on today, was very different than the reality of the statement that Jesus was actually making. And this, this story, this conflict of the reality and expectations of the triumphal entry is what we're going to be focusing on this morning. We're going to be looking at the account that's found in the Gospel of John. John chapter 12, verses 12 to 19. So uh, I invite you to open up your Bibles there now or use your phones. That's cool. Every, every gospel account has this story, but there's something a little bit unique about the way John tells it that just struck me this year. So let me pray, and then let's dig in. Heavenly Father, we invite you to, to speak to us, to transform us as we open up your word together. Holy Spirit, would it be your words from these scriptures that penetrate our hearts and our mind and lead us in a closer relationship to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So before we actually start reading from John, uh, I'll just give you a very brief summary, paraphrase of what happened of John chapter 11, the, verse, uh, the chapter right before our story happens, because it really adds the context and, and the punch to the power of the story. Well, most importantly, John chapter 11 is where we find this account that Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And as a result, many people, many Jews, many Israelites turn and follow Jesus. But it's also interesting that they note not everyone does. Not everyone who sees this with their own eyes believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and they actually go report it. They go to the Pharisees, they go to the high priest, and say, you guys need to check out this man. The chief priests and Pharisees respond, if we let Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come, and take away both our place and our nation. That's John 11, verse 48. But then the high priest says this phrase. He says it's, it's better for one man to die than for a whole nation to perish. 
what he had in mind was if we kill Jesus, if we put an end to his work, if we put an end to these words that he's telling people, then it's not going to cause a fuss and the Romans won't come after us. We'll save our nation. In reality, he was prophesying of something greater that was about to come. Reading John chapter 11, verse 55 to 57. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he'll, he'll come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. What is the expectation? The expectation is that Jesus would attend the Passover. It was customary for all Jews to make the pilgrimage up to Jerusalem, attend the Passover. But Jesus, the one who was, was a teacher, uh, a prophet, a rabbi, God himself, it was expected he would attend the Passover. It was inexcusable if he wouldn't. But the reality, if he does attend, he will be arrested. It's kind of this catch-22 thing of like, if I go, I'm in trouble. If I don't go, I'm in trouble. And no wonder this generated so much discussion. The whole city was watching and talking. What was Jesus going to do? No matter his choice, it was going to make a very powerful statement. The start of chapter 12 tells us that six days before Passover, which would have been Saturday, yesterday in our calendar, Jesus enters a town called Bethany, just two miles outside of Jerusalem the holy city where the pilgrims were heading for the Passover feast. Jesus goes into this town and with his disciples into his friend's home, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. The very Lazarus that Jesus had raised from the dead is now sitting at a table eating and enjoying a meal with them together. It is during this meal that Mary gets down, opens this ridiculously expensive bottle of perfume, pours it on Jesus on his feet, bends over and brushes his feet with her hair. It was a sign of her humility, of her personal devotion. It was also an anointing, a preparation for his burial. As the crowds went up to Jerusalem early to purify themselves for the feast, Jesus was also getting ready. Well, the people catch word that Jesus is in Bethany and at this home. And it says that the people head over, but but not just to see Jesus. The people are actually going there to see Lazarus, the one that Jesus raised from the dead. Their expectation. We want to see evidence of the past work that this man Jesus has done. And maybe, if we're lucky, we can even see another cool trick. But the reality, they don't realize that Jesus is preparing for the greatest work yet. Now the chief priests stick their noses in this scene again and and determine, you know, it's not just Jesus that we should be after. It's not just Jesus that we need to kill. We actually, we need to kill Lazarus too. It's because of Lazarus that people are leaving us and turning towards Jesus. So they actually thought that a meditated murder would be a better option than considering that there actually might be some validity to Jesus. They were so hard and stubborn in their ways that they thought it was a good idea to break their own laws to break one of the Ten Commandments and seek to murder these two men. 
their hard hearts cause them to be delusional. But it's now at this point. Now we kind of enter the core of our story, the triumphal entry. John chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. It says this, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now this is the crowd that was previously contemplating, is Jesus even going to show up? What's going to happen if he does show up? What's this Jesus guy going to do next? And they heard that he was on the road. He is coming. They knew this meant big things. This is, this is it. This is the moment we've been waiting for. Jesus is making a stand. So why, why palm branches? Well, one, it was very easy. Palm branches were in abundance. They're really accessible. So this crowd uh, is, is rushing together. Jesus is coming. Let's go out and greet him. They're cutting off palm branches as they run out. Let's grab what we can to welcome this man. But palm branches are more than that. They carry a lot of significance and symbolism for the Jews, the Israelites. It's a symbol of Jewish nationalism. It's a symbol of ruling power. When the temple was rededicated, the temple in Jerusalem, about uh, 200 years prior to this, they used palm branches in their celebration, claiming that this is where Jews stand again. This is where we have gained our place again. It symbolized Israel's national hopes, which are now focused on this man, Jesus, being hailed as he enters the city. This wasn't a way that you greet a teacher. It's not a way that you greet a prophet. It's a notion of victory over our enemies. Here comes our king to destroy our oppressors. Let's go out and meet Jesus. He's making a stand. He's claiming his throne. Let's go welcome our king. This image of a triumphal entry uh, it sounds kind of unusual to us, but it's actually really pretty common in the day that when a victorious king would come back from war or another war hero, then the city would go out and greet him and welcome him back into the city. And even in Jewish culture, this was common, and the exclamation of Hosanna would have been what they would normally use to welcome in their king, the returning king. This whole scene that the people have created. Remember, Jesus is just walking in at this point. It's the people that come out and make the scene. The scene that they create is, is just oozing with political fervor. We read this and we say, yes, Jesus is the king. But that's not really quite what the people had in mind. They, they spoke of things greater than what they knew. This phrase, Hosanna, that the crowd is shouting, comes from Psalm chapter 118, which uh, Brad read for us uh, this morning. It literally means save now. Psalm 118, verse 25 to 26 says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This is a psalm of thanksgiving. It's it describes a festive procession into Jerusalem after a great deliverance. The psalm was often used at feasts of the Israelites and particularly used at the Passover. This was a customary psalm that they would sing every year. And most scholars think, you know, probably the first time they wrote this, they sang it, would have been at the foundation of the new temple. 
It's a psalm of victory over the enemy. Uh, some of the phrases that we read in the psalm as a whole is, the power of the Lord to save. We're being pushed on every side by the nations, but the Lord is my strength. I shall not die, but I shall live. Thank you, Lord, for answering me. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And you can hear the excitement of the people shouting, save us now. A genuine cry of the people. But they changed it. This is a psalm of, of the pilgrimage, of the pilgrims going up to Jerusalem for the feast. In John's account, the crowd adds a tagline at the end. After they quote the song, they say, Blessed is the king of Israel. That's not found in the original psalm. And it departs from its intent. And suddenly we gain an impression that the crowds aren't talking about collectively moving towards Jerusalem. They're talking about greeting a national liberator. The crowd would have understood this phrase, king of Israel, in, in a political, in a military sense, still hoping that Jesus would use these amazing powers to resist Roman rule, to lead their nation back into independence. But they spoke of things greater than they knew. The expectation of this crowd was he would become their king, and he would set them free from Roman oppression today. The reality Jesus wasn't here for a fight, and his eyes were not on a throne of this earth. The, the crowd may not have had their expectations set properly for this Messiah, but what they did have right was that Jesus is the king to celebrate. He is the promised one. He's the one to lead us to victory and freedom. So much so that when Luke tells this story in the book of Luke, the, the Pharisees then turn to Jesus as the crowd is shouting this. And he says, Jesus, rebuke your followers. Jesus' response, you know, if I tell them to be silent, the rocks are going to cry out. I am worthy. I am the king. But the expectations were wrong. This, this idea of the crowd, of the Israelites, pushing Jesus to be a king of their own mind, of what they thought their king should do, is actually something that they try to do pretty often. Earlier in the book of John, John chapter 6, Jesus had just multiplied the loaves and the fishes. And 6.14 says, the people saw the sign that he had done. They said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Well, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him away by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. He could have taken this throne a long time ago. But that was not his purpose. What's even more interesting is how Jesus responds this time in this story. The people are crying out, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel. John chapter 12, verse 14, the next line in our story. Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it. Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So Jesus answers these cries from the crowd with a parable acting out his true kingship. Now the story in John simply tells us Jesus found a donkey. But, but we know this story and every other account tells us that there's a little more forethought put into this, right? Jesus grabs two of his disciples and said, go on into the town ahead of us. 
There you'll find a, a donkey and a donkey's colt. Now bring them back to me. And, you know, if its owner asks you what it's for, just tell them the Lord needs it. And that's exactly what happened. The disciples go find the donkey, and the owner's like, what are you guys doing? He's like, the Lord needs it. Okay, you can take them. This wasn't just incidental. You know, it's part of the prophecy, but it wasn't convenient. It wasn't just Jesus going, right, there's a prophecy. I need to check my Jesus box and ride on a donkey. There's a lot of intentionality in seeking out a donkey. Every version of the story tells us Jesus sought out the donkey. Jesus, who walked everywhere, now responds to the crowds by making a powerful declaration it's pilgrims who walk into Jerusalem. It's a king who rides into Jerusalem. And here's what else it would have communicated. A donkey, this donkey was, it was never sat on before. It was never used before. Therefore, it was fit for a king. Therefore, it was fit for a sacred purpose. Riding on a donkey is, is a symbol of peace. Different than riding on a horse, a symbol of military conquest and power. In the book of 1 Kings, King David is on his deathbed. And he commands the priest and the prophet, take my son Solomon, mount him on my own donkey, bring him to be anointed as king, escort him back to Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, to the acclamations of the people and the blessing that his throne will be greater than his father's throne. That's what Jesus is acting out. That's 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 32 to 40. John makes sure that the readers reading the story catch the royal significance of the cries from the people. It's quoting Zechariah chapter 9. This phrase, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Zechariah 9.9. 9. But he's using this to correct the misconceptions of the people and what they thought a king would be. Because although John doesn't say the next verse in his account, if we read Zechariah 9, verse 10, it changes things. It says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. The Lord is going to bring an end to the traditional instruments of war. He will bring peace to the nations plural, not just to the Jews, to all nations. The expectation, Jesus would be the king of military might and power for the Jews. The reality, Jesus is their king, and his entry is a claim that he is going to save them. And it's going to happen now, but not in military power. The reality is actually quite the opposite, and there is another kind of power. Now, is, is it fair to blame the Jews in this story? Like, they still recognize that there's something great about Jesus. There's still something that attracted them to Jesus. I mean, John writes himself, verse 16, not even his disciples understood the things that were happening at first, but, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things that had been written about him and what had been done. You and I, we kind of live in this era of privilege, right? Because we have the whole Bible. We know how the story ends. We can read it front to back and back to front. And we can understand um, 
these nuances that Jesus is making. But the people were confused. Their exclamations were true. Everything they said was true, but their expectations on how that was going to unfold, that is where they were wrong. John makes an interesting re-emphasis on this crowd as the triumphal entry comes to a conclusion. John chapter 12, verse 17. The crowd had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead. They continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. We're connecting the story back to the beginning. And there's so much tension in this statement. And there's two sides that we need to look at. First of all, what a testimony. They saw the work of Jesus. They pursued Jesus to see more. They told people about the events of Jesus. It would seem like these people were quickly becoming genuine disciples of Jesus. However, the story doesn't unfold the way that they expected. In fact, it's this very same crowd. And just five days from now, are calling for Jesus' crucifixion. The seemingly devout followers quickly turn away when being associated with Jesus no longer looks like it's going to fulfill their own immediate desires. So we need to pause at this point in the story. We need to ask ourselves a couple of questions. What sign would be big enough for you to believe and I used to think, man, how cool would it be to live in the time of Jesus, to be able to see these things with my own eyes? I bet my faith would be so much greater. They did see, and they did not believe. They were facing the signs of the promised Messiah right in front of their face, but they were looking for a Savior who would change their own circumstances, not one who would transform their life. So why? Why do we follow Jesus? Why do you follow Jesus? Are you, are you there to see Jesus? Or are you there to see Lazarus? If, if we are looking for Jesus, are we trying to fit him into our own preconceived ideas of what a Savior should look like? Or, or are we sitting at his feet? Are we listening? Are we learning who Jesus really is? Because we need to experience Jesus for ourselves. How close are you with Jesus now? When was the last time that you've seen Jesus work at your own life? Not someone else's life. That is good. But when was the last time you've seen him at work in your own life? And it doesn't have to be something big. It doesn't have to be a miracle. But it does need to be personal. Now, just a couple Sundays ago, uh, Mel, my dad, was on stage talking in our One Another series about uh, this time when I was a young child and I was really sick and how their small group came and supported them in prayer during this difficult season. And through that, I was healed. Th this story literally changed my life. It changed my life, but it's actually more my parents' story than my own story. I can hardly remember that. I can hardly have glimpses of memories of those days so long ago. But I do have stories of my own. It's, it's almost ridiculous to admit 
when I recount the ways that God has been at work in my life, my own healing hardly even makes it on the list. But it, it's not my only story. That was 25 years ago. And I think that if, if I never pursued Jesus more than that one event, I don't think I would be where I am today. And, and I know that my parents have stories more recent than that as well. It is good to have these stories. But we need more stories. We can expect that Jesus will give us more stories. Now, church, your youth, they are the ones who are demonstrating this more than I have ever seen anyone demonstrate it before. This personal recognition and openness of having Jesus continually at work in their own lives. Every week since January, uh, one of the youth have been coming up in front of everyone and telling us part of their spiritual journey. We make it simple. Here's a list of eight questions. Choose one, two, three of them that you would like to answer. The most common questions chosen. What's been one of the most difficult things you've had to face? And two, how is Jesus currently at work in your life? And these two questions go hand in hand. The testimonies are making the truth of Jesus known. They're allowing Jesus to be at work in the midst of their present difficulties. It's not just a story of who we want Jesus to be. It's a story of the truth of how Jesus is at work. Do we understand Jesus' work over our own expectations? What's our response when our own expectations don't match? the reality of what Jesus is doing before our eyes. The crowd in our story, they sway back and forth to whatever seems best for them. But Jesus taught us. Jesus also demonstrated to us that we are to pray, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. God's will is always, always greater than the expectations of our own will. All right, let's get back to our story. We'll find its conclusion. The story of the triumphal entry, filled with its misconceptions and false motivations, is still a high point. It carries the hope of what's to come, the hope of a better future, the hope of salvation, the hope of liberation, and this hope is found in the man Jesus, our king. And everyone could see it. They didn't see all of it. They didn't understand it, but they could see it a glimpse of it. The crowds were coming out to meet Jesus, and it's this gathering that propels the story of Jesus forward into the next chapter. It's the growing fame that turned the Pharisees to target in Jesus. So much so that the Pharisees close this story with a profound statement. They see these crowds coming towards Jesus. They see that they're hailing Jesus as king, and they look at one another in verse 19, and they say, you see, we're gaining nothing. The whole world has gone after him. They too were concerned about a political reality. What's Rome going to do to us next? But they also spoke of something greater than what they knew. And unfortunately, this is where we stop reading the story because that's what the little titles in our Bible tell us to do. But it gets so much better 
if we just read a couple more verses. Verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. They went up to Philip and Andrew, seeking to be able to talk to Jesus. So Philip and Andrew go up, go up to Jesus and say, there's, there's some non-Jews here that, that want to talk to you. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The, the climax of Jesus' story. Not a misunderstanding. Not a downplayed action of his kingship. It's time to show the world who I am. What do you expect from Jesus? Now this is what I'm afraid of that we are going to answer. We're going to assume that we've been expecting too much from Jesus. Because we have an expectation in mind. And when Jesus doesn't answer that the way we think he will, well, reality must be down here in disappointment town. The reality is, we ask too little of Jesus. We, like the Pharisees, we, like the Jews, we have spiritual tunnel vision. We're limited in what we can see and in what we know. And in that moment, we often don't realize Jesus is doing a greater work. Be patient. He is always at work. So what does Jesus expect from us? That we should listen to him. That we would set aside our own agendas, our own preconceived ideas of who we think Jesus should be. Listen to who he actually is. That we would listen and that we would follow. And not my will, but yours. Jesus' words as he continues to speak of these Greeks who are coming to visit him. Verse 26, he gives the call, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Most of the palm branch waivers were not willing to follow through on this call because it turned to a call of self-sacrifice the life of following Jesus. But the reality is, the reality is that the kingdom is about to be established in power greater than they had ever imagined, and the doors to the kingdom are going to be opened far wider than they had ever expected. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we declare that Jesus is Lord. Just as every person who was baptized this morning stands and made their declaration that Jesus is the Lord. We stand together and we, we believe this to be true, that you are our king, that you have the power, that you save, that you bring freedom. This is your work. So Lord, we pray for eyes to see the work that you are continuously doing around us, that you would fill us afresh and new each and every day. Strengthen us to follow you in the midst of our own circumstances, Lord, because we know it is difficult. Provide for us what we need. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.